Matthew 13, verses 44 through 52. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. If I haven't met you, my name is Eric Kapoor. I'm pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church of Orange County. This summer, as we've started our series on the parables, we've begun by looking at seven parables that are all grouped together here in Matthew chapter 13. This morning, we will look at the last three parables altogether. Before we talk about these parables specifically, first I want to step back and I want to point out something that is true about all of the parables in this chapter. Something we have to see in order to understand all of them as a whole. The question is, is this just a random collection of parables that Jesus told that Matthew just uh, happened to group together? And the answer is no. There is something here that ties them all together, and you may have picked up on it, as so he was reading those three stories for us. And what ties all these stories together is how they begin. Did you see that? They all begin with this. The kingdom of heaven is like. Six times in a row, Jesus tells a story by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he proceeds to tell that parable. The only one that doesn't is actually the first parable, the parable of the sower. But even there, when Jesus explains that parable to his disciples, he says in verse 19, this is what it's about. When anybody hears the word of the kingdom. This means that these parables are stories that Jesus told to explain to us what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, that was Jesus's central and core message. When he began his ministry, you can look at this in Matthew chapter 4. The summary of his message was this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, a message like this, a message about a kingdom, has both personal and individual implications, as well as collective, systemic and universal implications, right? We're talking about a kingdom here. Have you ever heard of a kingdom coming? 
into another kingdom. And that kingdom saying, hey, here we are. We are here. We're a kingdom, but we're just here to rule over one person at a time. Each person who chooses to come on our side on an individual case-by-case basis. Have you ever heard of a kingdom like that? No. When a kingdom comes, it comes with authority, an authority that's complete. It comes with power, and it comes with change. It comes with the force and the power to change everything. It's comprehensive. And that's what Jesus was saying. Each person is called to repent, to come under the authority and into the power and into the change of the kingdom of God. This change, this authority, and this power, Jesus said, that is here with him and that is coming. Jesus says God is restoring his rule over every dimension and facet of human life. Individually, yes, but so much more into all spheres of life, the relational, the social, the systemic, the physical, the cosmic, all of it. Now, a message like this, it can sound like either the best thing ever, or it can sound like the worst thing ever. Now, it depends. If you like the kingdom you're in and feel like things are fine and just need to tune up a few tweaks, we can fix it all. Just give us a little help. Then the message of a coming kingdom sounds like the worst news ever. Don't want a new authority to power or to change. But if you feel like the world that you are in, if you feel like your life is broken and in need of outside help, in, light, in need of new power and new change, then it can sound like a hopeful message, like maybe the best message ever. Now, let me just ask all of you this morning, how are you feeling today in our world? How are you feeling today about the things that you are wrestling with in such hard and heavy times? The message of authority, the message of, of, of power, the message of transforming change that can be, bring everything back under God's rule of justice and peace and reconciliation. This message that proclaims a healing of all our ills, personal, societal, and even physical. How does that message sound to you? I think it sounds like the best message ever. And the question is, how does it take hold of us? How does it take hold of a life? And how does it get into the world? These last three parables that Jesus tells us, he tells us how the authority, how the power, how the change of the kingdom of heaven it gets into a life and gets into the world. How is it? There's two things we have to know, and I'm going to share these two things in two points. We have two points in this message, and I'm going to flip the order of these parables, talking about the net first, and then we'll look at the stories of the pearl and of the treasure. And I'll close with some thoughts on the last two verses there. So first, this parable, the parable of the net, it's a parable that tells us the truth, the hard truth about sorting. Let's look at the story. 
Now, we can imagine that when Jesus told this fishing story, the eyes of a number of his disciples just lit up because this was their world. This was their livelihood. Peter, James, and John, Jesus' closest uh, friends, they actually were fishermen. So they knew all about this. Fishing with a net, as Jesus describes here, a dragnet, was a very common way to fish. And it's probably what they used often. And it's actually probably what was happening right in front of them, as we see from verse 1 of chapter 13, the setting, the place where Jesus told all these parables, was by the lake, the sea, likely the Sea of Galilee. So fishing is your livelihood. It's not just your hobby. Uh, a pole is not good enough. You need a net. You need a big net to catch a bunch of fish. And this is what they would do. They would get the biggest uh, net possible, this drag net. Uh, often it was 100 meters long. It had corks to make it float. The fishermen would go out in two boats, and they would kind of uh, go to these, they would fan out to different uh, spots here, stretching the net, and then they would chase the fish into the net, bring it back together, pull up the net, and see what they caught. After they pulled up the net, they would have to sort out the good fish uh, from all the bad fish. Now, there were about 24 different kinds of fish in the Sea of Galilee. And they had to sort them out. They had to sort out the ones that were inedible, nobody would buy, and even those that were unclean or too small. So, Jesus says in verse 49, this is how it will be. At the end of the age, there will be a great sorting, a judgment, a separation of the evil and the righteous. This is where all history is headed, to a sorting to a judgment. And this is a very sobering truth. In this story, there is a very important truth about this sorting, about this judgment that Jesus is driving home. I want to share it with you in one sentence. And this one sentence will have two parts. So here's the first part. The truth about sorting is this. It's not our job to do the sorting. In Jesus' day, one of the main features of the culture of the time was how people were always sorting out other people. They were separating other people and labeling people. In other words, there was a lot of judgment going on. It was everywhere. It, there were a lot of people who thought it was their job to do the sorting for God and on His behalf. To decide who was in the good bin and to decide who was in the bin that was bad decide who needed to be thrown out. And there were labels that they put on people who belonged in the bad bin. Labels like sinners, tax collectors, Gentiles, Samaritans. But Jesus seemed to be spending all of his time with the people in the bad bin. The people that had been thrown out now, people who thought they were in the good bin were scandalized by this. They couldn't understand what Jesus was doing. And they were the most angry and upset with Jesus for not doing the sorting with them. Now, one of the main features in our culture, in our time, in our current cultural moment, is that there are a lot of people who are sorting out other people. We are doing a lot of sorting just like what was happening 
in Jesus's day. It seems like more than ever, people on all the sides of all these many issues that are so hard and so heavy are thinking, it's my job to do the sorting, to decide who goes in the good bin and decide who goes in the bad bin and is labeled and thrown out. And we see this everywhere, don't we? We see it on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter. We see sorting and labeling and separating people. We see people placing other people beyond forgiveness, pronouncing judgment. We see it in what's called cancel culture. We see it whenever we think, if you are of this party or of this perspective, you are automatically in this bin. You need to be thrown out. I have no time for you. I cannot listen to you. We see it in how we handle our response and our convictions about this disease that we're all facing. We see it in how we sort people out and whether they're wearing a mask and when they're wearing a mask and when and if they are or are not. We see it in our response to the disease of racism and the realities of, of injustice and the need for change. We see all kinds of labels and sorting going on. Now, I chose to bring up just a few light topics. Now, these are very heavy, important issues with life and death consequences. We cannot ignore these things. We must engage and we must respond. But how can we work towards healing? How can we work towards reconciliation unless there is somewhere, unless there is somewhere where the sorting stops? Unless there are sorting free zones, spaces to talk seriously about what is evil and what is right. There is so much we need to talk about with all of these things. There's so much we need to listen to. There is so much we need to repent of. But how can we do it unless there is a space where there is gentleness, humility, along with accountability, where no one is going to be immediately excommunicated and thrown out because of what they say, because of what they're working through. This parable says this is the space that the followers of Jesus must create. This is the space that the church should be. Jesus says it's not any person's, especially his disciples' job, to narrow down the kingdom of God, to throw anyone out into the bad bin. It's not that time. It's not our place. Now the net is cast wide, this is the time of gathering. Let me ask you this question. Where are we in this parable? Where are we supposed to see ourselves? Think about it. We're in the net. The angels are outside of the boat. They're the ones doing the sorting. We're in the net, along with all the other fish of all kinds. We are in the net, on the way with everyone else to the final sorting. And we should take that to heart. Every careless word you utter and type, Jesus says, you will be accountable for in the final sorting. Now, what should we expect while we're in this net? <laughs> Do you see the picture? We should expect to be smashed up uncomfortably with all kinds of other fish. Can you see that? Many scholars point out something interesting about this story. The word fish is actually not here. It's not mentioned in this parable. It's supplied here in translation, but the literal 
the literal um, rendering of this story is Jesus says, having gathered together every kind in the net. The word there, every kind, is the word genus. It's the word usually translated race in the Bible. Now, race was a major and accepted separation in Jesus' day in all kinds of different ways, Jew and Gentile and many others. Jesus is hinting here at something he makes very clear elsewhere. His kingdom will gather us together, uncomfortably so, with all kinds of people, all kinds of races. Such is the gathering work of the kingdom of God. Now, it's not our job to do the sorting. That's the first half of the sentence. I only gave you the first half of the truth that this parable is teaching. What's the second half? second half is this. It's not our job to do the sorting, but the time will come when God will do it. Jesus talked here very directly about judgment, and often it's hard for us to hear this. We want to circle all the places where Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged. Circle it. We love it. Yes. But when he says fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth, we want to delete that, cross it out. But there is great irony with this. Think about this with me, friends. More than ever, we want to ban God, we want to ban Jesus from talking about judgment and hell like he does here. Yet, more than ever, we are judging and sending people to hell all the time. That's strong language, but isn't it true? When we sort people into the good and bad, we are throwing people away. We're casting people off. This is why we need the second part of the sentence. One of the worst things we can do in the pursuit of goodness and peace and justice is to eliminate or downplay the final judgment, the truth of judgment after death, because without it, what are we left with? We are left only with judgment now. Judgment is placed into our hands. It's only a matter of who has the power. We are the sorters. But if this is true, that there is a sorting to come between evil and righteousness, there is great importance and significance to all of our actions and our words and our choices. It means, now listen to this, it means there is a kind of sorting we must do. We must sort out the difference between evil and righteousness. We must also help others sort out this difference. It is the most loving thing we can do, to not pursue what is right, and to help others pursue what is right is the most unliving, uh, unloving thing you can do if all of history is headed to a final sorting and judgment. As has been said before, the opposite of love is not hate, it is indifference. And we must stand for and speak for what is right, but not as a sorter or a separator, standing over people with a gavel, but as a servant, sitting at the feet of people with a towel to wash the feet of even our enemies. Obviously, there's a tension in what I've just shared with you. So it is not our job to do the sorting, but there is a certain type of sorting that we must do for ourselves and others. We are living in that tension right now. Sorting out evil and right is a different matter than sorting out people as good 
or bad. And we must live in to that tension as the followers of Jesus right now. Now let me transition from this first point. The truth about judgment is also that the truth about judgment is not enough. It's not enough to save anyone from judgment. It's a hard and sober truth that we must account for. But the truth about judgment is not how the kingdom of God gets in. It's not how the authority and the power and the change of the kingdom of God gets in to a life and out into the world. This parable doesn't say anything about how the kingdom or the rule of God gets a hold of somebody. How does this happen? Well, that's what these other two parables describe for us, the previous two. So let's look at those. These next two parables tell us how does the kingdom of God get a hold of someone? The authority, the power, and the change? It's by the joy of selling everything. Now these stories about the treasure and the pearl, they're clearly a pair. They're meant to be taken together. They both end the exact same way. These guys sell all they have to get something more valuable. Now these parables show us what happens when the kingdom and the rule of God gets a hold of someone. What's the reaction you should look for? How do you know that it's happening in your life? How do you know when it might be happening in somebody else's life? That the kingdom of God is at work? What's a sure sign to look for? Is it fear of judgment? No. Is it sorting and separating and condemning? Absolutely not. What is it? It is the joy. It's the joy of selling everything. That's it. When you see that, that's the kingdom of God at work. Let's take a quick look at these stories. First, the hidden treasure. There's a guy in a field. Uh, kids, if you downloaded the Kids Bulletin, uh, Christy put a great picture, uh, a great uh, artistic rendering of this. So check it out. There's this guy in a field. Uh, who he is and what he's doing in the field, exactly, we don't know. We're not told. That's not important, but we do know it's not his field. He's probably a laborer, worker of some sort. He's doing the work, he's digging, and he's He's working in the field and bump, he hits something really hard and he looks and he opens it up and it's treasure. And so what does he do? He's like, oh, I have to hide, I'm gonna hide this, I'm gonna bury it down here. He buries it, covers it up, he goes out, he sells everything he has. He comes back to the owner who clearly doesn't know what's hidden in this field. And he says to the owner, I want the field. And he buys it. What about the pearl? Uh, there's a story here about a pearl merchant. Uh, so it's unlike the accidental discovery of the treasure. This guy knows his stuff. He's on the lookout for fine pearls. At the time, pearls were considered by many the most valuable and precious of all stones or, or gems. One day, as he's doing business, he sees it. One pearl. A pearl of priceless value. He knows what he has to do. He has to have it. So he sells everything he has to get that pearl. This is how the kingdom of God invades and takes over. Not by the power of force or compulsion. Not by the power of fear. Not by the threat of judgment day. Not by the power of what other people think or how they label, separate, and sort us. The kingdom of God invades and takes over by the power of joy, by the power of an undeniably greater value and beauty. 
That's how the kingdom of God invades. That's how the kingdom of God gets a hold of a life. Let me share this one sentence summary of this parable. We have a slide for that. When we really see the kingdom for what it is, we will joyfully give up everything to have it. That's how we know the kingdom is coming and taking hold of us. To sell everything means what? It means that nothing is more important to me or valuable to me or precious to me than Jesus. If it comes down to a choice between anything else and Jesus, I will always and in every instance choose Jesus no matter what I have to give up. That's what it means to be a Christian. What Jesus says is right. What Jesus says is true. I will choose that every time. Now, in Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul shares his own story of how the kingdom of God took a hold of his own life, of how this happened to him. He says there in Philippians 3, everything that used to be gained to me, that I used to consider valuable and precious, I now consider it all dung compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. All the privilege and comfort and wealth and status and access I had, I sold it all. Now he goes on to describe exactly what this meant for him. He made it very personal. It's all in Philippians 3. You can look at this later. He says, all the status and comfort I worked to have as a successful Pharisee, a leader. He says, I gave it up. I sold it. All the power of an up-and-coming, zealous religious leader. All the approval that won me in the eyes of other people. My reputation, I sold it. All the privilege of my race and tribe and nation, he says, of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, I sold it all for Jesus. And it was the best deal ever. I gave up dung, he says. This is a family program on YouTube, I know, but he says, I gave up all that pile of crap. Worthless, nothing. It's even stronger language in order to have and get the surpassing value of Jesus. <laughs> Here's how all other kingdoms work. How, how did this happen? What did Paul, what, what happened? How did this happen? What was the difference between the kingdom of God and all other kingdoms? How do all other kingdoms work? Well, the king comes in and he says, give me everything and you will get what you deserve. And that's better than not getting what we deserve. But Jesus says, give me everything. I'll take what you deserve and I will give you what I deserve. My righteousness, my status. I will give you the perfect love the Father has for me. Give me your sin. Give me your guilt. Give me the judgment you deserve. And I will give you my righteousness. Jesus says, I will be sorted out and thrown out and cast aside for you. And I will give you everything that is mine. <laughs> we say, wow, what's the catch? What do we have to do? The parable says we have to sell everything. It's all 
or nothing. There's no in-between. The only way to get in the kingdom is to say to Jesus, there's nothing I won't give up to follow you. That's something we learn over the lifetime of following Jesus. It hits us when we first come to Jesus. And we learn over time more and more the dung that we need to give up, that we need to sell in order to follow him. Now, often when we're contemplating a purchase of what we buy and sell, we, we say, like, it's too expensive. I'm not going to buy that. It's too expensive. But that whole, that whole idea of what's too expensive, it depends on what it is, right? If I say to you, uh, this water bottle right here is, uh, I will sell it to you for $150,000. You can have this beautiful Trinity sticker on this water bottle. You will say to me, uh, that's a little too expensive. But if I said to you, there is a house here in Orange County. It's a seven-bedroom house. It's updated. It's wonderful. It has a pool. It's $150,000. You would sell anything you had in order to get that house. Be the greatest deal of the century. These two stories teach us. A sure sign of the kingdom of God at work is this. Giving up things. Giving up things that would seem absolutely foolish to anyone who hasn't seen the surpassing beauty and the value of Jesus. Who hasn't seen the treasure. Who hasn't seen the pearl. Everybody, all their friends, the, the friends of the merchant and the laborer probably say, what are you doing? Just imagine them selling all their stuff, bringing it to the market, say, sell this, sell this, all their gold, all their possessions. Everyone must have looked at them and said, you are insane. You are a fool. But they hadn't seen the treasure. They hadn't seen the pearl. You know, it's often said that Christianity has been a tool of oppression that holds down the poor and the marginalized. But is that how the poor and the marginalized see Christianity? The fact of history is no. It's exactly the opposite. The vast majority of Christians throughout history have been those who have been poor and marginalized. When they see Jesus, when they hear the gospel of the kingdom, they say, this is a treasure. This is a pearl. Maybe the better question that we need to wrestle with is this. If Christianity is used to justify the oppression of a person or a group for any reason, if Christianity is being used as an excuse or a cover-up to hold on to, to acquire more privilege, to hold on to and acquire more power, more status, more wealth, more possessions, then can it be really called true Christianity? When the authority and the power and the change of the kingdom come, Here's how you know it's at work. The joyful selling of everything. Whatever Jesus calls us to sell, gladly and joyfully do it to get the greater treasure, to have the greater beauty, status, comfort, privilege, wealth. What a deal. Gladly give it up to have the power of the kingdom of God 
than the righteousness of Christ. I want to end with one final thought here, and this is looking at the final two verses in this section. Jesus ends his, his string of seven, uh, seven straight parables with one final story here. It's kind of a curious story. And he says to the disciples, he asks them a question, have you understood all these things? I think he's talking about uh, all these parables. And they say yes. He says every scribe who really gets this is like a master of a house who brings out judgment on everyone. It's like a master of a house who comes out of his house to sort out all the good and the bad people. No. It's like a master of a house who brings out treasure. He's talking about the role of the people who know the Bible. He calls them a scribe. And now, the Pharisees and the scribes, and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they brought out of the Bible judgment. That's what they were good at. Sorting, separating, condemnation. And Jesus was so angry and furious with them because they drove people away from God. And they drove people away from the kingdom of God and ended up themselves so far away from God and his kingdom. Yet they were so close to the Bible. How did this happen? These parables tell us they weren't willing to sell anything. They chose to keep their power, their status, their religious superiority and privilege instead of grab a hold of the kingdom of God that had come in the very Son of God himself. Now this is an application I'd like to close with for you to consider for our time. Jesus is, is asking us to consider this question, what do you bring out of the Bible? I'm talking to my Christian friends here. What do you bring out of the Bible to display, to parade out for the world? To help others see the difference between right and wrong, evil and righteousness. Jesus says, you bring out treasure. You say, oh, look at this. Look at how beautiful and valuable and desirable this is. Now, I want to share a quote from Blaise Pascal from his thoughts called the Pensees. I think he's saying the same thing here, and he says it so well. Here's this quote from Pascal. He said, men despise religion. He's talking about largely the Christian faith here. They hate it and are afraid it may be true. Yeah, there might be judgment coming. Nobody wants that to be true. The cure for this, he says, is first to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true. And then show that it is. <laughs> Pascal is saying the same thing Jesus is saying here. If it is true, then it is also beautiful and attractive. Show the attractiveness of the kingdom of God, that it's a treasure, that it's a pearl of great price. No one should ever reject Jesus and the gospel of his kingdom for being unattractive and ugly, an ugly vision of human flourishing, a boring vision of what life should be like. No, the only reason should be it's too good to be true. It's way too beautiful to hope in. The world is too broken for that to ever happen, for that to be true. For God himself to come, to take what we deserve, to give us what we don't deserve. 
mercy, grace, and the righteousness of Christ. It promises too much. That should be the only reason to reject the kingdom that Jesus has brought. Now, do you, when you invite people into your house, <laughs> do you say to them, hey, you know, I want to show you something. Um, why don't you come out back to my backyard? I want you to, here's where we keep our trash bins and where we sort out all the garbage. Here's, how, here's where we sort and separate out everything we want to throw out. No one does that. <laughs> you bring people into your house and you show them some of your favorite and prized treasures, your favorite pictures, your valuables that have great memories and meaning. So should it be for us, my Christian friends, to a world so broken and so battered by injustice, so worn and scared of all the sorting and separating, to a world that is hell-bent on judgment, to a world that is weary, anxious for all the disease that's surrounding us, to a weary world what do we have to bring out? We have a treasure. The most beautiful message anyone has ever heard. The king came. He took the judgment we deserve in order to give us the righteousness that only he deserves in order to bring about peace, justice, reconciliation, to give us the power to forgive as we have been forgiven, to give us the patience to listen, to give us the ability to love that we don't have in and of ourselves. Friends, let's grab a hold of that treasure and hold out that treasure for the world to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us these stories, these parables that strike us to the heart, that tell us sobering and hard truths, that our lives are accountable to you, that every word we speak, that every action we take, we must account for. But thank you for giving us the most joyful truth that we could ever conceive of, that there is a treasure, that there is a pearl, more beautiful, more valuable than anything. And you offer to give us that freely. A great cost to you. But to us it comes. If we are willing, we know, Lord, to give up everything. Everything that is actually worthless. Everything that actually has no value in order to get that which has greater value. I pray you would, you would convict our hearts. Where are we holding on to things that we need to sell off? Where are we, Lord? Help us see sorting and separating when we are called to serve gently with humility and love. We know the world needs it. We know that we need it. And we know that it's beyond our strength. And so I pray that your authority, your power, your change would break into our hearts by the power of your Spirit, so that we'd give up anything in joy and grab a hold of the surpassing value of knowing Christ our Savior. 
May we do it by your grace, in Christ's name, amen.